From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, the new wave in ocean tech, Apple goes into the energy business, mapping supply chains, and a former Marine talks sustainability. It's Semper Fi, this week on 350. It's June 17th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Here, as always, is Green Biz Senior Editor Lauren Hepler. Hey there, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How's it going? Well, it's been a big week for me, as you know, and we'll talk a little bit yeah, about that. Yeah, really. Just bringing everything all together at once. We're getting ready to go to Hawaii, a little book yeah, on the way. The book came out this week on Flag Day Tuesday, appropriately, I suppose. Uh, we uh, the, the book finally got published. A little anticlimactic since we'd been talking about it for so long. And, and a week before, we sent out uh, emails to uh, 5,000 of our closest friends, the, the three authors. And so we got a lot of... That felt a little bit more like the launch, but it's now in there and people are starting to review it on Amazon and all it's the good official. stuff you want. Yeah, it's official. Cool. So we'll definitely jump into that. But otherwise, yeah, we're just ramping up to head to Honolulu next week. We'll be talking about clean energy in Hawaii, and you'll hear much more about that later in the episode. But for right now, let's jump into the Week in Review. So like we said, we're about to head to Honolulu to talk clean energy in Hawaii all next week. And one of the articles we had in advance of that was from our senior writer, Heather Clancy, who looks at ocean energy and whether Hawaii will be taking the plunge. Yeah, this is part of a larger theme. We talked a little bit about it in our State of Green Business Report. Elsa Wenzel, our managing editor, wrote a piece called The Business of Oceans Catches a Wave. And it's about a lot of different ways that that uh, business opportunities that come out of the ocean in a sustainable manner. And energy is certainly part of that. So Heather is right on the pulse. Here's what she had to say about where we are now with ocean energy and where we might be headed in the coming years. So I wanted to start right away by saying this is not tidal energy or wave energy or or even thermal energy. Actually, a little bit of thermal energy. We'll get to that in a moment. But um, what, when people are talking about the ocean and Hawaii's energy future, right now that short-term future really involves offshore wind. So there's several different projects being explored um, off of Oahu, and um, that's really what people mean when they talk about you know, ocean energy in Hawaii, um, because frankly, obviously the, the land mass is pretty limited. So there's only so many solar panels you can put up, only so many windmills on the land. Um, so people are looking offshore to the vast ocean for ideas. And what sorts of installations or arrays are we talking about? I think I've seen some stuff about crazy looking floating arrays, but are there other things? So the, a, a couple things. One is, um, yes, the, the, the idea is that these turbines would be tethered off the shore and um you know they're going to be off they need to be in deep enough water to um to be sighted uh and, and tethered to the ocean floor but the, and so they're 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 quite a bit they're not like right off the beach but they're 
they're on the horizon. So I think um, that's one of the concerns that uh, some of the developers have, have run, run up against. And, you know, I know one of them um, has spent at least four years actually going to community groups and um, different different constituents to talk about the, the different scenarios of, of what this would mean. So yeah, um, the, the platforms are essentially floating. Um, they're not like, you know, it's not like a huge structure that digs into the ocean floor. Um, it floats on top. It, that, that allows it to kind of have the movement, um, in the shipping lanes and so forth. If, if it is even concern, but, um, it also in theory makes for less damage on the floor because you're, you're basically tethering in, um, on a smaller footprint, um, rather than having huge structure that would, would mess up the, the reef and, and, and the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what about, you said in Hawaii's case, this is not really about tidal energy. Are there other things that maybe emerging technologies down the road that could sort of more directly play off the natural sort of dynamics and kinetic energy in the ocean? So one of the things that, uh, they're exploring actually, um, Hawaii, uh, is one of the foremost research locations on thermal um, thermal energy, and the the idea of that is that you use the the temperature differential for, between the surface level, like the hot you know sun warmed surface water, and the the deep water, which is much cooler. And you can theories that you can use this to create energy. So there's some exploration going on um, in Hawaii and research on into this ocean energy, this ocean thermal um, technology. And there's a couple of different um, scenarios. One is that, you know, the, the good news is that it's abundant, right? That there's a lot of stuff to work with there. The bad news is that the, um, you have to have a pretty, pretty big temperature differential to, to really create the energy. So um, you need to, these things to be huge. So the efficiency level of them isn't quite what needs to be done, um, needs to be there yet, which um, and in order to test it, you're going to have to build big ones. So that's kind of the downside of it. The other sort of um, offshoot of these systems is that you might be able to use them for district uh, district cooling or, yeah, just in Hawaii, district cooling, obviously. But uh, you've probably heard about these systems in Europe where people use water to cool uh, cities and downtown areas, right? So they pump the water in and, and help uh, defray the energy uh, sort of heating and cooling costs of buildings by using water. The same idea would apply here. So the, the water that's cool after this process, after, after the conversion process, could be used to help um, cut down on energy uh, costs associated with air conditioning. You know, obviously in Hawaii, a big, big deal. So so anyway, that's, that's one of these things that's um, <laughs> one of the people I interviewed uh, sort of likened it to like pre- <laughs> being in an elementary school, whereas like solar and wind, the, they're they're kind of progressed into the graduate school phase. So, <laughs> so if you, you think about it that way, you know, it's like the, the level of knowledge is um, building, but still incredible. There's still so much work to be done there. Mm-hmm. The, the cool kids and renewable energy that are <laughs> funny. So it sounds like um, obviously in a place like Hawaii, where tourism is very mm-hmm. much sort of the, the golden egg, you would obviously expect some concerns about um, the aesthetics of how these developments might look. Any other potential rough waters in terms of mm-hmm. setting up transmission back to the to land or anything like that? So uh, obviously the, the tourism thing is big. No, you know, uh, people have concern about seeing these huge things looming in the distance, um, the not in my backyard thing. 
Um, the other thing, obviously, to be concerned with is the, the, the whale migration and the, 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 the rich diversity of marine mammals in the area. And they, they want to make sure that these things don't interfere with, with the, the ecosystem there, right? So there needs to be research done there. And they're, they're, they're spending time on, on um, the, the developers are obviously spending a lot of time on trying to um, understand the implications of this. And you also have a very interesting dynamic, dynamic of um, needing to make sure that the Navy's happy, right? So the Navy controls um, different waters off, off, of a, off of Hawaii, the various Hawaiian islands. So they need to make sure that they have unfettered access, if you will. So um, they need to, anyone who wants to develop there needs to, to, to actually convince several different constituents. And um, they're, they're definitely working on that. You know, they need to go out and, and make the case to a lot of different people. Very interesting stuff. Well, senior writer Heather Clancy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lauren. Have fun in Hawaii. So you had a story this week, Lauren, about Marks & Spencer, the UK-based retail chain, uh, about how they're mapping their supply chain, uh, sort of being brought to the table, as big companies often are by their uh, NGO activists and stakeholders and maybe their customers. Uh, what's going on here? So it's all part of this evolving trend in how companies are handing, handling their sustainability data. Um, gone are the days of the 200-page PDF that you download and read once a year. It's much more about sort of interactive graphics or different sorts of online tools that are, frankly, maybe more useful for digging into the areas of the world that a company affects and sort of what the relevant issues are, how many people they're employing in these places. Um, so for Marks & Spencer, which is obviously the big UK retailer, um, they have this big 10-year plan called Plan A. It's around their 2020 goals, covers climate, environment, social issues, so lots of things. But the thing that piqued my interest was this interactive supply chain map that they've come out with um, that shows where all of their operational facilities are from uh, Africa, Asia, Europe, North America, South America, literally all around the world. Um, and you can sort of click on these bubbles on a map and dig into you get the exact address of where the facility is, how many people are employed there, and sort of even what the gender breakdown is. So interesting stuff. So I did a story a couple of years ago about the Sustainability Consortium doing commodity mapping where they were, and that was specifically to to look at where some of the big commodities were coming from and how that mapped to biological hotspots, in other words, places where ecosystems or species are endangered. So that was a, clearly a way to to understand where the, there were some big impacts and, and red zones, I guess, that they should be looking for. What's the purpose here? What, what is Marks & Spencer hoping they'll achieve? They say this is all about transparency. They've been getting a lot of demand from NGOs to talk more about the workers in their supply chain. So along with this mapping tool, they did their first uh, publication ever on human rights specifically. Um, and one of the things I'm interested in seeing, they said this is sort of, you know, the 1.0 version of this mapping tool. And right now, like I said, you basically get the raw numbers of where the workers are, how many of them are in each type of facility, but it lacks some of the more granular data that groups like TSC put out there, which is what are the specific sustainability hotspots in that area. Like in Bangladesh, we know that's rife with lots of different labor issues. So what I'm interested in seeing if they start to overlay some of these things that are not pretty and maybe not good for publicity, but that I think a lot of people are more cognizant of now. So this is sort of that classic tech company thing of, 
of putting it out there and even though it's far from perfect and then building on it and using it as a platform, getting feedback and seeing what the response is and then uh, fixing it uh, regularly or once in a while or, or in some fashion. Is that sort of the plan? That's the idea. Uh, it also, interestingly enough, uh, dovetails with a story that our senior writer Mike Howard did this week, which looks at 10 climate change fighting energy apps. Um, so again, this idea of how you can best harness technology for sort of more targeted sustainability impacts. Um, so Mike was looking at this area, obviously, on the heels of the Paris Agreement and what we've been talking about with the Clean Energy Ministerial recently in San Francisco to look at some of the specific mobile apps or uh, some of them desktop also that are out there for people uh, looking to better better measure their energy footprints and make a dent in those. And are these primarily for individuals and their homes or is this uh, for B2B use? Companies are looking at you know, their, their energy impacts and how to manage them? It's a bit of a mix. So you have things uh, that are more well publicized on the consumer side, like Google's Project Sunroof, where you can sort of look at the solar potential of your own house. Um, but there's also ones like MapDwell is another one that looks at uh, from MIT that looks at the solar potential of entire cities. Uh, so some of these can be for you know the public side. There's also on the private side. Um, IBM is doing a lot with renewable energy forecasting that helps utilities increase the reliability of renewables by combining weather predictions, when's it going to be sunny, and different types of analytics. So it really does sort of hit people all across the board. It'll be interesting to see how these apps uh, get used and, you know, which of these really last because, you know, <laughs> we've got a lot of apps out there, not not necessarily hundreds or thousands in the in the energy field, but you know, we're all a little apped out. I don't know how many you have on my phone, but I'm up probably up to screen five. Of, I don't know. Yeah. Apple makes me keep deleting them because I have my storage limit. <laughs> oh, 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 well, see, uh, you're, you've got a problem that I haven't yet experienced. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how much these actually get used because often they're fun for a minute or five, and mm -hmm. uh, we'll see, are these getting the traction that they deserve? So we teased it last week, but the time has arrived. Joel, your new book is out this week. Very exciting. So the title is The New Grand Strategy, Restoring America's Prosperity, Security, and Sustainability in the 21st Century, co-written by Mark Puck Mickleby, who's the co-director of the Strategic Innovation Lab at Case Western Reserve University, also formerly of the military, and Patrick Doherty, who is the co-director and co-founder with Puck at the Strategic Innovation Lab at Case Western. So let's start off with the basics. What's the elevator pitch here? Well, it depends on which, uh, how many floors we're going, but the short <laughs> ride is that this is an economic plan for America born at the Pentagon that embeds sustainability as a strategic national imperative. Now, if we have a little bit of a longer ride, maybe a few stops along the way, express uh, rush hour kind of elevator, <laughs> I'd tell you that it involves dusting off a, an old discipline called grand strategy, which is something that America has used in its history to to take on the big existential challenges of the day by aligning its economy with its foreign policy to to uh, solve problems. And, and we've done that around 
defeating fascism in World War II and containing the communists, the Soviet Union, during the Cold War because we didn't want to take them on on the battlefield. And then what? We really haven't had a strategy since they lowered the hammer and sickle uh, on the, the Kremlin for the last time in, in 1991. So that's 25 years ago. And so what is the big global challenge? And we say it's global unsustainability. So if we're talking about an exercise that hasn't really been undertaken since the Cold War, why now? Well, I mean, first, take a look around. I mean, America is, you know, not the best America that we can be. We look at our politics, we look at our fiscal condition, we look at our physical condition, whether it's infrastructure or all of us and nutrition. We look at, at our, our declining topsoil and, and, our, and waterways and, and climate and everything else. And, you know, we're, we, we're in a difficult situation, uh, potentially, at least if we don't, you know, make some course corrections. And, we don't all really know where we're going. This book really started when when uh, uh, Mark Puck Mickleby the, uh, was a Marine colonel and was brought to the Pentagon uh, by, uh, by Admiral Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. This is back in 2009 and teamed up with a Navy captain named Wayne Porter and, and they asked to, to create a narrative for America's future. You know, why would they need that? Well, Mullen, I interviewed him last year. He said, I didn't really know what we were fighting for, you know, and, and we needed a vision of, uh, besides freedom and liberty and, you know, the terrorists and all that. But in terms of the America, what America wanted to be in the world. Yeah, and you hinge a lot of this conversation around resilience as sort of a massive opportunity to sort of maybe correct course and exploit new gains. Uh, is that just another version of the military-industrial complex, though? Well, first of all, I think I have to explain what global unsustainability means, because I think most people listening to this will think, it's well, it's environmental conditions and maybe some social things. It's actually four what we call antagonists that are all fused together. One is a, about rapid economic inclusion of 3 billion people and, and the 300% resource uh, increase uh, that is per capita that's going to, you know, be necessary as these billions of people start to attain middle class status, and how do we do that? Um, and so, while solving for inequality, social and economic inequality here in America, we've got the ecosystem depletion where you've got uh, climate change and and the decline of a lot of different ecosystems, forest, fisheries, ecosystems of all all sorts. Um, you've got the contained depression. So most economies of the world thrive when there's consumer demand. Consumer Spending drives seventy or seventy percent or so of, of gross domestic product, and and in this country right now, a lot of that's being propped up by monetary policy, where the you know this stuff where the Federal Reserve is feeding money into the system or keeping interest rates artificially low. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in China. It's happening in Japan. And so, how do we get back to this point of consumer demand driving? And the fourth one is the resilience deficit: our infrastructure, our supply chains, which are very fragile and brittle. And uh, subject to disruptions of all kinds. So we need this is where resilience and things fit in. So, no, this is not part of the military industrial complex. This is very much a domestic a program or domestic initiative, which is why the Pentagon didn't know what to do with this report that that Colonel Mickleby and Captain Porter created back in 2009. They sort of let it go. And that's why Puck Mickleby left the military and formed this institute with my other co-author, Patrick Doherty, and the three of us connected to write this book. 
So in terms of making sure that this isn't just dusting off the report and sort of bringing the ideas back to life, how do you sort of get the ball rolling on all of this? Uh, you talked about sort of the paralysis we see on Capitol Hill. Is this a matter of Congress getting its act together? Is this up in the air with all that's going on with the presidential election? Well, first of all, this is not a Washington program, unlike grand strategies in the past, which have been driven by uh, the the federal government. This is a bottom-up strategy, and that's what the book is about. It's an, it's this economic plan from the ground up happening in communities and you know, with where mayors and CEOs become the heroes, not members, you know, congressmen and senators. Um, and so this is, uh, and it doesn't require any changes in policy, doesn't require any federal money, although, you know, a little federal leadership, uh, Washington leadership would help. But we lay out a plan of how do you solve these issues of, of resilience deficit, contained depression, ecosystem depletion, rapid economic inclusion, rebuilding consumer demand, uh, and we'll get to that in one second, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in, in, in doing it in a way that, that brings together uh, prosperity, security, and sustainability. And so this is not a Washington program. It's not a military thing. Uh, this is very much about building our economy from the ground up, tapping three big pools of demand. There's a lot of big ideas there, starting with even just looking at the link between national security and sustainability. How do you think this book will change what you'll be writing about specifically and what you think Green Biz could be covering more broadly? I mean, I guess the short answer, this has opened up my eyes in some big ways. And it really does. Uh, one of the things that was compelling to me about this is that this really answers a question that I've been talking about for a long time, which is that we don't have any leaders, political, business uh, cultural who are telling a story of what happens if we get things right. And this book really is a story of what success looks like, how sustainability becomes a driving force for job creation, economic development, food security, water security, housing security, energy security, uh, public health, and then ultimately regional resilience. The resilience being the ability to withstand shocks of any kind, whether they're political, economic, terrorism, healthcare, or climate. So I think that I now see the world differently. I see the, the security piece and, and I see lots of other pieces. What this book did for me, Lauren, is that it really helped me think, and hopefully it will for readers as well, does, what does it mean to be secure? What does it mean to be prosperous? And then, of course, the question we grapple with all the time, is what does it mean to be sustainable? And it, how those three things come together and, and in, their, in all their fullness is now part of my DNA, uh, professionally speaking, going forward. I've seen Puck speak about some of this also, and he really does bring sort of a unconventional angle to this, um, not exactly what you hear about at sustainability conferences or that sort of thing, very much bringing the national security impetus to all of this. Yeah, Puck's amazing. And in fact, he and I are so completely different. Uh, you know, he's this former Marine who, uh, you know, fought it was fighter pilot missions over Bosnia and Iraq. And I'm the Vietnam War era, you know, conscientious objector and protester who uh, writes about sustainability and once upon a time did an oral history of Woodstock. So we couldn't be coming from more different places. And yet, through over the years, we found ourselves in the exact same place um, with sustainability being uh, an organizing, integrating idea that can infuse not just environmental and even social, but n national security and community resilience. And uh, to hear him speak is really amazing. He, he really sort of brings it 
and he really uh, gets almost any audience to stand up and cheer. Uh, here's a little taste that came from uh, the Verge conference uh, in the fall of 2013 in San Francisco. Uh, here's just a snippet. To me, the only thing that I see happening in America right now is we are focused on being the, the source of status quo. We are the agents of status quo, and that scares the hell out of me. It scares the hell out of me because we know in any ecology the only thing that subscribes the logic of status quo is a monoculture, and monocultures wither and die. And that is why we have to come to grips with this little idea of grand strategy, because grand strategy is the only thing in this nation, the only organizing logic, the only discipline that's going to allow us to address what the, a cause of America ought to be in the 21st century. And at least I think that was what the sense was of Admiral Mullen when he asked me and the Navy Captain Wayne Porter when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to consider this idea of grand strategy. Now, I sure as hell don't know what Admiral Mullen wanted us to do, but this is what we gave him. We wrote a paper, it was called the National Strategic Narrative. I don't know what that really means, but it was a National Strategic Narrative. It wasn't a grand strategy per se, but the bottom line is when Wayne and I sat down, and mind you, I'm a Marine Colonel, this is a Navy Captain. I mean, we, you know, we're apolitical, we don't have a dog in the fight, we're not greenies, we're not anything. We were just told to do a job, so we sat down and freaking did it. In a national strategic narrative, basically we said, we have got to shed this manic focus on threat and risk that informs our nation's activities today. We have got to refine this, whatever, this DNA in America of opportunity, that we pursue opportunity. I mean, after all, we're supposed to be the stinking land of opportunity. We're not the land of threat and risk. And so in this document, we said we've got to find a way to shed the constructs cognitively, organizationally, that we still have on life support that worked for us so well in the 20th century, particularly in the Cold War, those constructs of containment that leverage force and power. And we've got to come to something else, something else that allows us to deal with the world as it really is, as an open system, as what Wayne and I called it, a strategic ecology. And how are we going to be the best competitor and the best contributor in that global ecology? And we said this one concept kept coming back to us. It was the concept of sustainability. Yeah, I said it. You know, Marine said sustainability. Forgive me, please. But sustainability could become the organizing logic, the national strategic imperative for this country. And it's not just because it's fluff. It's because it freaking works. When you look at the concept of sustainability, particularly the ecological definition of sustainability, it maps directly to our enduring national interests of prosperity and security. I mean, look, at it's, the definition, you know, the one that we used, was uh, an organism's ability to remain diverse and productive over time. Diversity, depth, redundancy, resilience. Guess what? That's national security, 21st century style. And if you're, if you're of the ilk, you say, well, you're going to send weirdos like me in funny tree, you know, green tree suits out and abroad from the shores outward to keep the bad guys away? Get over it. Because there's no keeping the bad crap away. There's not enough bubble wrap in the world to wrap around every American's head to keep him safe. There just isn't. We have got to toughen up as a nation because I don't care if it's a hurricane, I don't care if it's Al-Qaeda. Something's going to happen. We're going to skin our knee. We're going to, well, I had used to have hair. You get your hair mussed up, all right? <laughs> Resilience, depth, redundancy. That's national security 21st century style. But also in the terms of prosperity, we've got to come to grips with the fact that we're talking about productivity in that definition. But we're also ta we're really talking about is growth. We've got to stop defining our growth in quantitative terms because I'm here to tell you that's not working for us either if you consider our physical condition as Americans, one-third of our nation being clinically obese, our fiscal condition, our economic condition, our environmental condition, 
our social condition, our political condition. The quantitative measurement of growth are not working for us. Maybe, maybe we could learn a little something from a small country called Bhutan and start getting to a place of gross national happiness. Yeah, I said another unmarine word, happiness. Right? <laughs> but we can start talking about qualitative growth and inform a new type of economy, a new type of structure for this nation that we can lead the rest of the world towards a more positive opportunities-based future. So we are, as we have been talking about for weeks now, uh, uh, a few days away from heading off to Honolulu for our Verge Hawaii event next week. And uh, we've told you all about it. You can go on the website. There's a uh, uh, free uh, live stream of the uh, event, which we'll post on the website. Uh, so please tune into the main stage events. You can talk to ask questions of the speakers, all kinds of cool things. But uh, let's go right to the source. Here's Elaine Shea, the director of programming for Verge. Uh, Elaine, uh, you got your base tan ready? Are you all good, good to yeah, go? Yeah, totally. I'm so excited. I just really wanted to ask you what your hope is for this week. In other words, if this event is successful, what what's going to happen as a result? Well, I think the main thing for me personally, after working for you know a very long time on making this um, as good of an event as we can, especially for a first event in Hawaii, um, is to really help the people who are attending, many of them being key decision makers and stakeholders in the state of Hawaii and other parts of the Asia Pacific region, but um, really primarily <clears throat> helping to expand their thinking about how to tackle solutions, getting the exposure from people from the mainland, people internationally, people from other industries, um, and understanding that it's not necessarily just about their single short-minded problem. And it's uh, it's helpful to talk to people who you may not think understand your problem because they inevitably may be trying to solve for the same thing and what they're doing. So, you know, the beauty of Verge is the fact that we bring a lot of people who are moving the needle together because they are able to be more expansive in solving problems. And the problem in, in this case is, is Hawaii's mandate to get to 100% renewable energy in the next 30 years. And that's what uh, the, is going to be at least the rallying part of what we're going to talk about. So I talked to Mark Glick, who, of course, is your partner in this. At, he runs the Hawaii State Energy Office a couple days ago, just to get some th last minute thoughts from him uh, about it. And I asked him that question, too, but we'll get to that question in a minute. But here's what he had to say. I think the most important thing is to have a new, improved dialogue on clean energy and best practices and and the leadership, not only in Hawaii, but around the country, a new improved dialogue, you know, a better way to explain what's going on. And I, and I think I think Verge does that. So what's going on? What, what, what are you trying to explain? Well, the, the key thing is that, first of all, there are, there are new ideas in terms of uh, infrastructure development, in terms of optimizing investments, not wasting money on improvements that need to be made to have much higher rates of renewable penetration. But there are other things to lay on the table. We have today uh, interest rates that are lower than inflation, and we should be investing in clean energy infrastructure. President Clinton was talking about that in Atlanta. And it's, I think, 
an important topic, and I'm hoping that Burj Y will lay these things on the table and it will, you know, force a honest discussion on on some of the things we need to do in the short term and and uh, plan for the long term gains to meet our 100% objective in uh, you know renewable portfolio standards. What will be an indicator to you that what we all set out to do at Verge 16 Hawaii uh, is working? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think some of the people that are attending are some of the, I think, more innovative uh, leaders in in this whole energy transformation effort. A number of them from Hawaii are involved in things like the power supply improvement plan, you know, the uh, next planning phase for our largest utility, Hawaiian Electric. And if they feel, you know, if we get feedback that they better understand the situation, you know, with the utilities and the challenges they face, and we also get a better sense of maybe some uh, a clearer pathway, better way to collaborate and work together on planning, uh, I think we'll, we'll have made progress. Uh, we're hoping that we'll get that kind of feedback after after the conference. If you know we have pledges from policymakers or we have pledges from some of the energy stakeholders in the Clean Energy Initiative taking on new infrastructure investments, or uh, you know some of the other innovations that I hope that are talking that we talk about, like microgrid development in some of our localities that are having some problems with either energy pricing or access, then, you know, I think we'll have made a, a better contribution than what we've been able to do before. Uh, the, the program seems to be shaping up nice, and I say that uh, as someone who only had a, uh, <laughs> a light hand in, in doing that. Who are you most looking forward to hearing speak? Obviously, we've been so closely working with our largest client, the military, Secretary Ballantyne, uh, very interested in, in hearing what is going on in, in the Air Force. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm always, last, last year we uh, had a pretty amazing discussion from uh, the governor, and I would certainly uh, very interest, interested in, in seeing what the governor is going to be saying this year. Well, uh, really looking forward to being there coming out on Sunday and uh, seeing you and, and uh, helping this event unfold and uh, hopefully in the process helping you move forward your goals. You know, we're, we're so pleased to have you and, uh, you know, I, I can't wait to see the people's faces when they experience uh, what we've all known for a couple of years now that uh, you really know how to bring the dialogue to the people. Great. Well, we're looking forward to that. Uh, thanks so much, Mark. Uh, see you next week. Okay. Take care, Jill. Aloha. So Mark, who lives in Honolulu, mentioned he was in Atlanta for the Clinton Global Initiative, just so there wasn't any confusion about where he was and what he was doing. Uh, what do you think, Elaine? It's really encouraging to hear Mark talk about a lot of this stuff that you know we've so... Um, diligently tried to build for the program. Um, specifically, he was mentioning the clean energy infrastructure discussion. He's actually part of a keynote discussion related to building the infrastructure for tomorrow. And that's a pretty significant deal because he's actually there with the Rear Admiral John Corka from the Navy, as well as um, uh, a senior executive in energy and utilities for Kaiser Permanente, so military, private sector, and then him from the state energy office. Everybody in deeply into building new kinds of infrastructure to really make a cleaner, smarter um, kind of 
process and and system for themselves. And the other aspect that I loved is that he was talking about the power supply improvement plan in Hawaii and how they're really deep into it. The regulators, um, the key stakeholders in the energy landscape for the state of Hawaii, you know, it's been a year in since the governor made this mandate around 100% renewables by 2045 for the electricity system. And people are still trying to figure out, you know, the solutions could be X and they're working through things. And what we're doing is we're leveraging the fact that people are already in solutions mode and we're building on that to really help them come up with the best solutions, how to truly set the right kind of stage, reflecting a lot of people, not even just from electricity sector, but infrastructure, transportation, et cetera, um, to to dive in and solve the problems in a more holistic way. Well, Elaine, you've done an amazing job of pulling the program together. Thank you for your leadership in this. And uh, we're all excited to be there. And hopefully people in the mainland and around the world will tune into the plenary sessions uh, online. Yeah, thanks. So Apple made some big news this week. They said they're going in the energy business. Unless you think that, oh boy, my phone's going to last longer now before a recharge. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, Lauren, uh, what are we talking about here? It's a, this is a this is an interesting one. Apple has quietly created a subsidiary company called Apple Energy LLC, and the way that came to light was one of sort of the Apple fanatic blogs, Nine to Five Mac, dug up last week this new application that Apple submitted to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, uh, asking for the green light to begin selling excess clean power uh, through Apple Energy within the next sixty days. So does this mean Apple wants to be an energy company? And and if so, what does that even mean? Not necessarily. Right now, they're looking to be able to sell excess power generated by solar farms they have in California and Nevada. Um, So this wouldn't actually change the flow of electrons in any way. Like this wouldn't let people, you know, plug into Apple's solar farm or anything like that. Um, But it does open up the possibility for some of these sort of more sophisticated business models we're seeing emerge in renewables uh, around things like virtual PPAs, where um, you're buying into this project, uh, even if you're not physically sort of getting the energy. Um, And it's interesting, though, in Apple's case, uh, I talked to Arif Jawati, who's the managing director of the Rocky Mountain Institute's Business Renewable Center, and he guessed that this is more about a long-term sort of strategic play for Apple, maybe that they'd want to better understand uh, supply and demand for renewables. And in one way, that could be a a price hedge against fossil fuels for them, as their CEO, Tim Cook, has spoken about before. But it could also be a way for them to possibly think about expanding their data center business, or if they really get serious about the car business, think about things like EV charging. So a lot of companies are generating more power than they need. Is this uh, something that we're going to be seeing more of? We're already starting to see a little bit of it from others. Uh, Walmart, Dow Chemical, Amazon, and Google are all experimenting in this area. It is, as you'll notice from that roster, mostly limited to the big players with really deep pockets. Um, Tuati from RMI was actually pretty surprised that Apple was getting into this because when you think about their energy use for sort of their virtual businesses, um, they're not as big of an energy user as a company like Dow that has all these big chemical processing plants. 
But um, sort of the upshot here is the potential willingness of a company to dig in. Like, why does Apple even want to be dealing with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission? Like, it's sort of getting away from their core business. But that could be something potentially scary for utilities if corporates are saying, you know, actually, we can sort of go at this on our own. And I spoke to Letha Tawney of the World Resource Institute. She is the director of utility innovation there about what's going on here economically, what the potential upshot is for Apple, and why it might not make so much sense for other businesses to follow the same path. Well, Apple and Google and a few others are unique in putting their own capital into these projects. The vast majority of the corporate buyers are not excited about being energy companies and would rather preserve their capital for their core business. Uh, And so... So this is a unique strategy. I wouldn't expect to see this widely taken up across the industry. Most other folks want to sign long-term agreements, use their um, their creditworthiness or their long-term commitment to make financing a project feasible, but somebody else's capital goes into the project. Uh, in in this case, I think it. You know, the economics work out well for Apple. They own the projects or they are significant investors in the projects. And so any revenue the project can earn comes back to offset that investment and offset the uh, electricity price they may be paying to their supplier, their utility in their facility. So selling power is complex. It requires a pretty... uh, large and sophisticated energy team, and that's why I think you won't see this particular strategy pursued by a wide range of companies. I think most of them are looking for an energy services provider who will sort of do handle all of this for them, and they can participate in a, in a simpler way. You you do virtual PPAs or contracts for differences in markets. You can do them in any of the organized markets, so MISO, PJM, um, California ISO. Um, and they let you participate in a facility that may be close to your facility, in a renewable energy project that may be close to your facility. But they don't let you actually change your energy service provider at your facility that retail choice is only available in a dozen or 15 states in the U.S. Um, And so if what you want to do is change how you're buying energy for your facility, uh, then you have to figure out how to work with your utility. And so in Nevada, that's actually what you see Apple doing, working with NV Energy um, uh, when they're on the buy side of the equation, they're actually working with NV Energy through the Green Rider to buy the power from their Fort Churchill project. They also happen to be on the sell side of that transaction, but most, in most cases, the customers are not also on the sell side of those transactions. So we talk a lot about corporate renewable uh, energy procurement and how we're trying to ramp that up, uh, how companies are banding together and we've we've talked every week there seems to be a new organization around this what does this say about the state of uh, corporate renewables like you said we've now got these like 87 different buyers collectives groups and all of that but perhaps the more significant thing here is that 
companies or middlemen that are also emerging in this space, clean energy service providers, are stepping in to do the work that utilities themselves used to do, potentially. Um, the issue here with seeing how this scales is that we still have this patchwork of different state deregulation scenarios for energy laws, who is even allowed to buy retail power, which uh, watch those closely is what my sources are saying, look less at the federal level, much more at these fights that are happening at the state level. Um, And also the fact that one of the requirements, if Apple does get this approval, is that they be small enough in their generation capacity that they don't actually impact retail energy rates. So in some ways, these corporations are being forced to keep smaller clean energy footprints. So what happens to utilities in all this? That is the million-dollar question. Tuati, again, from RMI, sort of framed this as a little bit of a tug-of-war within corporate America, where you have some of the uh, companies like Apple uh, sort of getting out ahead, saying we want to seize the benefits of clean energy early, and then the energy incumbents obviously digging in their heels and saying, not so fast, where are you going with our market share? Um, He maybe draws a parallel to something like the telco, telecom breakups we saw in the 1970s that were spurred in large part by big businesses sort of defecting from the status quo. Um, So the question really now is if incumbents will get on board And if they do, whether it will be fast enough to save their businesses. So this question of sort of survival of the utilities, I also posed to Letha Tani from the World Resources Institute. And here's what she had to say about the bigger picture for the corporate renewables market and the future of utilities. It's a mark of how serious the companies are about seeing the benefits of renewable energy, the long-term opportunity that it provides, and how um, urgent it is to their own corporate strategies. Um, And I think utilities are paying close attention to that, and we see utilities across the country trying to offer um, competitive products that are are of interest. So I had a conversation this morning with um, a governor's office in the Midwest about how they might think about offering products um, to the companies in their state who want to do renewable energy. I I think it's just a mark of the urgency these companies feel in meeting these goals and that they'll they'll pursue it, um, you know, hopefully with, but, but even without sometimes the incumbents. So whether or not Apple can turn this into new energy-based revenue, we have yet to see, but I, for one, will be staying tuned. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you'll find the links to the organization's stories and events that we've mentioned in this episode if you just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to podcast director Saria Melconian. Send your feedback, ideas, and comments to 350 at greenbiz.com, and we'll see you back here at from Honolulu next week for another edition of Green Biz 350 Aloha Style. For all of us at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.